the Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Industrial Security Podcast. I am here as usual with my co-host, Andrew Ginter, Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, who's going to introduce today's guest of the show. Andrew? Hello, Nate. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Good to chat with you. Our guest today is Buki Carmeli. He is the former Director General of the Israeli National Cybersecurity Authority, reporting to the Prime Minister. Today's interview is a bit different. Andrew, you got a chance to sit face-to-face with Buki and interview him yourself in my place. Um, so here is your interview with Buki Carmeli. Hello, Buki. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Our first question today, I was going to get started very generally. You led the creation of Israel's new uh, cybersecurity authority. How did that go? Is Israel more secure now? Yeah. At the history, um, it all begins in January 16 when the government of Israel uh, decided that it's about time to protect the civilian domain against cyber attacks. Because traditionally what they do, they protect military and uh, other confidential assets. For the first time, the government of Israel decided to protect the civilian domain. So they ran a uh, government resolution known by the name 2444. And the idea was to build a system that will balance between the tense uh, or between the needs to protect the civilian uh, domain on the other end to uh, uh, keep following human rights and intellectual property uh, rights as well, civilian rights in general. And the process itself included several uh, building blocks, like we had to develop a uh, system to deal with incidents, to remove incidents, to immune the system, to immune the market, we had to develop access to the market because we speak about private market, which is uh, uh, mixed with the uh, governmental market as well. We had to build what we call sectorial centric points for the public, like uh, a general cert with a 911 number. Uh, we built a financial cert for, to protect the financial sector in Israel and energy, uh, energy cert to protect the energy sector. You have to build uh, what we call civilian intelligence in order to create um, um, sources of information for the protection of the civilian domain. You have to create synergy between the new authority and the other big guys around you, like police, Shabak, Mossad, IDF, etc. You have to cooperate with countries, international cooperation. You have to hire people to work for the government and... You may probably uh, aware that the governmental sector never pays like the private sector, so it's a challenge by itself. You have to follow uh, regulation issues, and you have to define a law to provide you the rights to do your job. It's all together the process of establishing of uh, national cybersecurity authority. It was a real challenge. I find what Buki said to be sort of interesting, almost from an ideological standpoint, that the nation of Israel would have actively chosen to further protect the civilian population. Um, is Israel more cyber safe today because of it? I do think so. I mean, the, the cybersecurity domain, the cybersecurity regulations and systems in, in Israel are um, among the most advanced in the world. Um, and, you know, setting up 
this system, uh, you know, the way that, that uh, Buki talked about, um, he, you know, he talked about relationships that have to be set up with a lot of, of uh, other organizations. Um, you know, doing this is, is not straightforward. Uh, you know, this is not an area that, that I uh, do a lot of work in, but I watch it from the outside, and it, it sure seems like a lot of work. The, the general field is called information sharing. So, uh, you know, how does it work? Well, let's say, you know, a nation, the United States, Israel, somebody's intelligence agency uh, discovers evidence of a terrorist plot that involves, uh, you know, cyber action, uh, a terrorist plot against a civilian target. Um, can they share that information with other organizations, with the civilian target? The information may be classified. The information may be embedded in other information that relates to, you know, intelligence operations or military operations that cannot be disclosed to civilian authorities. Uh, you know, is there a mechanism in place to extract the information, to sanitize it, to approve it, to get it into the hands of the people that need it, uh, you know, without compromising other, uh, you know, confidential operations in, in different organizations. Putting this whole thing together is, is, uh, is tricky, and, and it works the other way as well. If a civilian site, you know, and suffers a, an attack, suffers a breach, and now they have a lot of information in their hands about who came after them and how they came after them and, and why it worked, how they got through defenses, is it safe to share that information with a government authority? You know, sometimes if you, you sort of do the right thing and share information for the good of the nation, it can come back to haunt you in the form of, uh, you know, grounds for lawsuits, subpoenas, uh, compliance penalties. And so there's a reluctance to share information on both sides, and that reluctance needs to be overcome. This is how you get the information flows that, that, uh, that need to happen. It's, you know, he, he went through it very quickly, but it's, in my understanding, it's a, a long and difficult process. And, you know, from my perspective as a born and raised American, this just kind of seems like it could be a political minefield. I mean, we have this discourse constantly going on here about what the government's role is, what the private sector's role is, and here the government is sort of stepping into uh, the realm of cyber defense in Israel. Um, I don't know enough about Israeli politics to say, but do you see any connection between what goes on over there and how we handle things uh, in, in the U.S.? Oh, very much so, and I actually asked Buki about that uh, a little later in the in the interview. So let's let's hold that thought for a little bit. Um, the The next thing I asked Buki about was, you know, he he talked about sort of the big picture of setting up all these programs, but of course, you know, my focus is industrial control systems. Right. Okay. Then let's get to what you asked him. Uh, here's Buki again. I'm curious. You said that there was a financial cert, there was an energy cert. Um, you know, the the energy is obviously very important to any developed nation. Um, if there are incidents in water or in pipelines, is there a special cert for them? Do they go to the energy cert? Uh, there, there is a big difference between uh, attacking traditional IT systems or general system versus attacking critical infrastructure systems. When you, when someone attacks uh, energy system, there is a, a huge risk of striking the power for critical uh, organization, critical uh, assets, etc. 
the same, by the way, the same as for financial uh, uh, financial organization as well. The, the fear of uh, attacking the stock exchange is uh, one example for it. So from that perspective, there is a big difference. Uh, the difference is, uh, is considered in several manners. One manner is the fact that uh, there is a huge sensitivity at the public. Uh, public panic is one thing that you have to consider when you deal with infrastructure, uh, an attack on infrastructure. On the other hand, there is a huge sensitivity for, um, uh, from the government's uh, standpoint because the government expects you to deal with these incidents and remove it as fast as you can. From a technological standpoint, there's no big difference. I mean, the attack, whether it comes on IT system or infrastructure, um, are the same. So, you know, Buki answered the question, but, um, you know, there was... There was a, a couple of points that he made that, that I wanted to highlight. Um, he pointed out that attacking IT systems and industrial systems is very different in terms of the consequences. There's very different kinds of consequences for the different kinds of attacks. But the very last point he made is that, um, you know, ICS cert, uh, energy cert, uh, you know, financial cert, there's more similarity than differences between these certs because the attacks are all the same um and you know he, he didn't dive into the details but he's right um when we get into the nitty-gritty of i'm going to control the industrial process i'm sending a command to a modbus you know programmable logic controller deep in the bowels of the industrial system when you get into that kind of payload the payload is different but if you look at the how you have to get the payload into position to bring about that kind of damage, all of those steps are the same. It doesn't matter what kind of system you're attacking. You've got to steal passwords. You've got to, uh, you know, find software vulnerabilities and exploit them. You've got to step by step work your way into your target. And, uh, you know, these, these modern attacks are more the same than different. And, you know, that's something that's that I've heard from a, a couple of different sources very recently. This is an insight, you know, People used to talk about uh, the the differences between intrusion detection on IT networks and, and control system networks, and there are differences. But nowadays, there is so much automation on control networks. Um, technology that detects, you know, intrusions on IT networks also detects a lot of nasty activity on control networks. So, you know, it's interesting that that uh, you know there the 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 uh, you know the the comments Buki is making is is reinforcing that that message that I'm hearing from other sources. I see. So when it comes down to it, that's there's more that connects IT and ICS uh, security vulnerabilities than that separates them. Am I right? That's right. Um, that's you know there there are differences in the deep in the nuts and bolts, but modern control systems you find windows boxes there we find uh, linux boxes we find printers we find we find the infrastructure that we find all over it networks and so all of the vulnerabilities of the infrastructure um, apply to industrial networks as well as as it networks so um, you know the the uh, the best practices the defenses that we put in place on it networks a lot of them are very relevant to industrial networks so, um, you know, I did I did kind of lead into this with my next question with Buki, um, asking him about best practices. 
obviously, critical infrastructure is is near and dear to the uh, the, the hearts of our listeners. This is the Industrial Cybersecurity Podcast. Um, can you talk to us more about um, what you folks have been doing with critical infrastructure, power plants, airports, water purification? Um, what is what is working for you? Are there best practices that you can share? Sure. First of all, it's important to understand that. Um, first of all, it's in, it is important to understand that um, if everything is critical, then nothing is critical. So it's very important to define what is exactly critical for you. Given a uh, given example, in Israel we define systems as critical systems. In Singapore, for instance, they don't define systems; they define sectors. In the U.S., they define companies, not systems. And in the U.K., they do something which is in in the middle between Israel and U.S. The big difference is that if you define a system, then you protect that specific system. You don't def- you don't protect anything around it. That's that's number one. And because we deal with the private sector. Uh, the government doesn't want to access these companies and tell them how to do what to do with their systems without a provision of a law. So we have a special law for critical infrastructure systems, uh, a law that provides the authorized officer, that's the head of the authority, to give instructions to the CEOs of companies that hold critical systems. And these instructions may refer to how to protect the system technologically, how to check the people, the reliability of the people, how to create the physical security around the system. It's altogether uh, cybersecurity issues that are all uh, in the hands of the head of the authority uh, provided by the law. There is a special committee in Israel that has to approve the definition of a critical system because you, you have to create a check, check and balance between the need of me as a head of authority to protect, to define a specific system as critical in my view, I would consider any, any system as critical. On the other hand, there is a, um, a need to provide the CEOs the right to work and do business and use the system without the in- interference of the government. Give you an example for critical system. Electricity company. Is, uh, if you ask people in Israel what is critical, they will definitely tell you that about electricity company. But electricity company generates only only 50% of the uh, electricity or power in Israel. We have other companies, private companies, that generate the, the, the rest of it. In electricity company, you have the system that generate the power, you have the, uh, the system that transmit the power, and you have a uh, um, system that uh, deal with the billing, uh, the billing issues, etc. Not everything here is critical. The generation of the power is critical. So the turbine are protected. The billing system is protected by electricity company because they need to do that. Not the government is the one that gives uh, the instruction for that. Uh, another example for that, which is well known, is the biometric storage of the Israeli uh, civilians. Uh, it is uh, defined as critical system. We protect it. I got to say, I really like his line, uh, if everything is critical, then nothing is critical. Um, I think that I might have to steal that for myself. And I think it drives home a sort of deeper point because sometimes, at least when I think about security, uh, I sort of have the instinct that 
well, we should be protecting everything. Why not think about everything here? Um, but no, there's actual prioritization that needs to occur, and more resources need to go to even different departments within an electricity company than others. Yeah, that's a great summary. And you know, this this uh, question of what systems are critical, aren't critical. Buki had more to say on that. Let's listen in. That's very interesting. So uh, can you give me uh, an example of uh, the kinds of debates that go on in this committee? What kinds of systems, let's say, have been rejected and said they're not critical? What kinds of systems, you know, what, what, what are the interesting debates that have occurred in this committee, if, if you recall? In fact, there are two kinds of debates here. One is when you, as the CEO of the authority, you want to define a system as critical and the committee doesn't agree. And there is the other way when the CEO of this company wants to be to be considered as critical for his ego issues, because being part of the critical system in Israel, it has something for the business as well, and you don't think this is, should be um, uh, one of the critical. In both cases, uh, you have to bring your own arguments. You have to debate on it. Give you an example for that. There was um, an argument, a big argument, whether... Um, the uh, courts, the central court, uh, central court in Israel should be considered as critical because they have uh, uh, nationwide systems. They have a lot of uh, uh, looks about um, trials and um, about uh, judge, etc. And my point was that it's not too critical in order to be defined like this. I'll give you another example. There was a big argument about hospitals. I mean, at the first impression, you would consider hospitals as critical, right? But in fact, in, with the hospitals, you have redundancy. So the redundancy level is so uh, big, so there is no real risk that the, the health system in Israel will be strike off. So there is no need to um, define them as critical. That was one argument of it. The other side of it, there was a system which I, I cannot specifically uh, point out, which I was definitely sure that this should be a critical and the committee didn't accept my, my opinion on it. It happens. You know, Andrew, if you asked me what are the most critical systems in human society today before I heard Buki, I probably would have said electrical power plants and hospitals. So what I'm getting from his interview is that I know nothing about anything. Well, it's, it's, a, little bit, it's a little bit confusing. Um, the, you know, the the redundancy. It, it was the the argument that he said, uh, you know, one over hospitals. Redundancy and security are two different things, um, but but they are you know they 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 are related. Um, so he gave the hospital example, and and he's right. Uh, but let's look at the power grid in uh, North America. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's something like there's there's roughly a thousand generators that produce over eighty percent of the uh, the continent's power, um, and so you might imagine that's a lot of redundancy. If I take out one of these plants, if I take out ten of these plants, there's still a lot of power to go around. The power grid is very robust in the face of that kind of attack. But let's say um most of those thousand power plants use turbines made by one or two of the world's biggest uh, electric power turbine 
you know, steam turbine, gas turbine producers. And uh, these producers tend to uh, want to connect monitoring systems, 24 by 7 monitoring systems from a central internet-based cloud uh, location into all of these turbines. You know, take an extreme example. Let's imagine that all of the, the, the thousand biggest turbines were monitored out of a single site. That single site has become a single point of compromise for the entire group of, of a thousand turbines. So the fact that there's a thousand of them in and of itself doesn't make them secure. So um, I did ask uh, Buki about this and, and to try and, and dig into the, uh, the second layer of, of complexity here. Let's hear what he had to say. You talk about redundancy. I mean, um, in, I've, I've heard this debate in, in, other, uh, in other regions. Um, people argue that uh, because there's a lot of physical redundancy in a system, we do not need as much cybersecurity. Can you talk about the, the, the balance in Israel between uh, these, these features? Well, in fact, when you speak about cybersecurity, you have to understand that the umbrella under the world cybersecurity is much wider than traditional technology security. When people used to speak about cyber, they speak about IT security, they speak about computer security, but in, in fact, cybersecurity is much wider than that. Physical security is part of cybersecurity because part of cyber attacks are actually maintained by people who put this key inside your system. So you have to create a sort of uh, physical gap between uh, people from outside and your systems. Sometimes people uh, use misled operation in order to steal information for, from networks. So you have to create sort of uh, access control, physical access control to server's room, etc. So this is this is the physical aspect. In Israel, whenever it comes down to sensitive systems, we combine all three, to, uh, all three poles together. Technological solution, uh, security, physical security, and human security, human reliability. When you speak about critical systems, my view was, and actually I speak about it um, widely, it's about time to switch from critical systems to critical processes. It's different. Because at the nation level, if you have a process which has enough backups and redundancy, then the fact that the, there is one system inside which is not necessarily well protected doesn't mean for the nation uh, significantly, uh, a significant risk. So um, we built a model, a model that called RDV, Redundancy, Diversity, Variability. Well, redundancy means that uh, whenever you have a critical process, create a redundancy for the process. If you have two different systems, make sure that each one uh, works differently. Diversity means that if you protect the system, use a different way to protect the other system. Don't use the same protection system for all systems. I mean, if you buy a firewall, just for instance, of one company, buy a firewall from another company, so um, you actually reduce the chance that uh, an attacker will recycle his success in one point uh, to um, replicate his attack on other points. Um, and finally, variability. Variability means that uh, change the topology of your system, the architecture of your network, very frequently. Because when you do that, you actually um, cause the attacker to change his plans and you reveal his, uh, his, um, um, his attack. I've heard similar 
arguments in other countries, I think the word that's being used in the United States is resilience. Is that related here at all? Yeah. There are two layers in the national cyber uh, security, resilience and robustness. These two um, combined, one is the passive or static defense, which is in, in, um, in so many words, this is the traditional IT security. And then the way you can actually adjust yourself against uh, new uh, upcoming attacks. This is the resilience. Both together is what we call national defense. RDV is part of the resilience, definitely. Yeah, you know what, Andrew? I kind of want to hear you talk a little bit more about redundancy because that seems like one of these principles that we actually haven't covered enough in previous episodes. Um, and when it comes to the power grid, one of the examples that is sort of easy to look back on um, in 2003, for a large majority of the northeast of the United States, um, a power outage occurred for what basically amounted to a, a tree having fallen on power cords in Ohio that trickled all the way to New York and beyond. Um, is redundancy uh, common practice in, in electrical power plants? Is this something that people are worried about and that there's enough of? That's a really good question. Um, the the phrasing, you know, Buki's using slightly different terminology. The phrasing that I'm used to hearing in North America is the redundancy, uh, diversity, complexity triad. Uh, redundancy means there's, you know, if you take down one target, the other ones pick up the slack. Diversity means the uh, the targets are uh, configured differently, deployed differently. They're all different targets. And so it's difficult to reuse attack techniques from one target to another. And complexity is the argument that industrial control systems are very complicated and um, it's difficult to um, carry out uh, sophisticated attacks on individual systems. And again, uh, contributes to the difficulty in reusing attacks between targets. Um, that redundancy, diversity, complexity, you know, trio um, has been criticized in North America, saying, you know, that's not the same thing as security. There's, you know, you're 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 kidding yourself in certain ways. Um, this, these systems are not as diverse as you think they are. They all use Windows. They're not as complex as you think they are. People have figured them out. But, you know, if you listen carefully, I think uh, much of what Buki was talking about was not just cyber redundancy, but physical redundancy and physical diversity as well. So, you know, physical diversity could mean generating power in different ways entirely. A natural gas, uh, you know, uh, power plant versus a solar plant versus a wind farm. So that um, an attack on one kind of generation is less likely to be reusable against other kinds of generation in a, a very diverse, redundant population of targets. Yeah, and building off that point, uh, the 2003 example, there was a single point of failure. Was that an example of people not thinking about redundancy, or am I misinterpreting what happened? Yeah, the 2003 examples is a different animal. Um, it was not a cyber security attack, though there was speculation at the time that, you know, some of the 
symptoms matched the symptoms of, uh, what was it, the blaster worm or something. But no, it was not a cybersecurity attack. That was what's called a cascading failure, where in a heavily loaded system, one component failed, and the nature of electricity is that the electricity in a transmission grid starts immediately flowing through other parts of the grid. This is this is the nature of electricity. Overloading those other parts of the grid, they tripped, and you wind up with a cascade where a single failure in a tightly uh, loaded system um, uh, disables, you know, the entire system in the matter of, of uh, you know, seconds or minutes. Right. So this was a failure of physical redundancy, correct? It, it was not really a failure of physical redundancy. It was so much. It was a uh, really the what what people. Uh, uh, invented after the 2003 blackout was a much more robust system of managing redundancy. And so uh, this is not a case where there was not enough generating capacity online. It is a case where there was not enough spare transmission capacity online to absorb the impact of a single failure of a heavily loaded transmission line. And so um you know, we're we're drifting away from from Buki's topic here, but the uh, the the main result of the 2003 blackout was a much more sophisticated system within the North American grid of managing redundancy. They they do what's called n minus one simulations constantly. They ask the question: If any component of the system fails, do I have a cascading failure? And if the answer is ever yes, they bring additional redundant components on. So um, it's it's again it's about physical redundancy. Um, I guess the the lesson here is that that physical redundancy can, uh, if it's done properly, can uh, mitigate certain cyber risks, can contribute to a robust power grid, which really is the goal here. It's not a secure power grid that's the goal. It is a reliable power grid that's the goal. All right. Then before we uh, stray too much further, let's get back to Buki's interview. Can you compare what you're doing here in Israel versus what other countries are doing? I mean, the, the American DHS is doing stuff. They're doing stuff in France. Are there things that other countries can learn from how Israel is doing things? Are there things that Israel is adapting and uh, using from other countries? Sure. First of all, um, it all began in 2002, before the cyber world has become so popular. In 2002, the government of Israel decided to protect the critical infrastructure systems. Actually, the, the term was essential computer, it's compu- essential, sorry, essential computerized systems. And they set the first law that I mentioned previously uh, to provide the government with the power to instruct CEOs what to do with these essential uh, computers. Then in 2012, Professor Yitzhak Ben Israel, which is a well-known figure in Israel, um, um, led a committee. I had the privilege to join this committee that dealt with the question, how do we protect uh, the civilian domain? I mean, we do a lot in order to protect our military issues, military assets, defense assets, defense industry, etc. But what about the other, uh, the civilian domain? And the committee decided it's about time to build what we called, at that time, Bureau of Cyber, which was a sort of coordinating um, committee led by uh, Dr. Vita Metania, that uh, his main role was actually to define 
who does what when between Shabak, Mossad, police, IDF, and another entity no one spoke about uh, NCSA at that time, another entity that will deal with the civilian domain. From that perspective, Israel was a definitely a pioneer. And Prime Minister uh, uh, Netanyahu speaks about it a lot, and this is the reality. We were pioneers uh, uh, from this perspective. In, 2016, uh, in, sorry, in 2016, we built the authority. And at the time we went out with the authority, we saw other countries uh, do similar, take similar actions, not very many, not uh, ma many of them. We saw U.S. and the DHS speak about uh, civilian cyberspace, cyber domain, and they spoke about, the, they built an, an entity called NPPD. Um, they are going to change the name right now because no one really remembers what are the initials of NPPD. But basically, NPPD is the parallel of the NCSA in Israel. We saw UK build the NCSC, which stands for National Cybersecurity Center. And their role was very similar to our role to protect the civilian uh, uh, domain. We saw the Singaporean people does the same. They built the CSA, the Cybersecurity Agency. Um, and at that time, there were only these four countries. We see more countries speak about the need to protect the civilian domain. But frankly speaking, at the time we speak right now, the more speak rather than do. And part of these countries, what they really do, they build CERT as a solution. And CERT is only one building block in the total um, system of protecting the civilian space. Do we have uh, something to learn from other countries? Definitely. Modesty and sharing is one key, important, important key in uh, national, uh, national cybersecurity. And definitely we have, a, we have a lot to learn from others and we can definitely contribute to others. So I did look up NPPD. It's the National Protection and Programs Directorate. But, you know, more generally thinking on Buki's comments, Israel really was a pioneer. They passed their first, uh, you know, industrial and other cybersecurity regulations in 2002. The earliest I'm aware of in the United States for any kind of, uh, you know, industrial security regulations with teeth in it was the, the NERC-SIP, uh, North American Electric Reliability Corporation Critical Infrastructure Protection Regulation, and that was five years later in 2007. Now, I have some friends who, whenever they hear that word regulation, uh, cringe a little bit. If Israel's a pioneer in this, uh, are they pioneering something good? Um, I, I did ask that, so let's hear what, uh, what Buki says about that. I understand you also have experience with public-private partnerships. I mean, you're talking about uh, securing the civilian space. A lot of the civilian space is privately owned. Um, this is the case throughout much of the Western world. Um, how are the various levels of government in industry working with, uh, sorry, in, in Israel, working with, uh, with private industry to secure critical infrastructures? You know, how are, how are we doing it today? Is it changing? How should we be doing it in the future? First of all, it's um, crucial to mention that, or to point out that uh, the balance between the civilian needs and the government responsibility, uh, that balance is, is a challenge to find. 
because um, it's clear that the government wants to protect the civilians' uh, domain for many reasons, because that's part of their obligation. On the other end, most of the civilian domain is built by companies with their own management and board of directors and shareholders. So where's the balance between their responsibility to protect the company and the government's responsibility to protect the civilian space? Where is it? And I think that we are very close to the point where government should go back and ask themselves, where are the limits between our responsibility or obligation to the public and the fact that uh, we don't want to take the responsibility for the behavior and security of each and every company by itself. I think that the, 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 the working point would be that the government would provide the platform, like intelligence, like uh, uh, central point, like CERT, for instance, um, incident response at the national level, etc. And companies will protect themselves by their team, by their staff, by their budgets. Um, the government of Israel decided that um, it's a national interest to um, ramp up the security level of the civilian space because we identify the fact that um, many companies which are not well protected serve as a platform for attackers in order to attack other companies. And in order to do, to ramp up the, uh, the security level, in order to do that, we decided to build the authority. But in the end of the day, the responsibility of CEO and board of directors is not less than the responsibility of the government. At least when I hear Boogie talk about this, um, it all sounds quite good in theory to have the government uh, protecting the civilian space where the civilian space needs it. Um, but then, of course, in, in the U.S. at least, we, we have agencies. We have an agency called the National Security Agency for which the civilian population has a sort of love-hate relationship. Um, can you talk a little bit about this boundary and how to uh, define it? Maybe your opinions about what Buki said. Yeah, it is a thorny topic. The... Uh you know, and and Buki indicated that the 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 government there in Israel is sensitive to the topic and is looking at the balance between national interests and private interests. Um, the you know, I'm not I'm not that familiar with the uh, the actual regulations that were put in place, but um, what uh, a lot of people uh, in in North America objected to in the first generation of NERC-SIP regulation, for example, had to do with uh, the fact that it was very prescriptive. You must do this, you must do that, whether it makes sense or not. So it was very compliance-driven as opposed to security or risk-driven. And so, um, you know, what what I'm hearing uh, is that, uh, you know, Israel is a much smaller place than the United States, uh, you know, uh, I'm hearing that the government is sensitive to it and, you know, is presumably engaged in uh, in a dialogue with private industry about the uh, the relative roles and, and how they evolve. What you know, what I took out of uh, uh, his comments there, I, I took off on a slightly different track. He was commenting about uh, suppliers attacking uh, the you know larger organizations about attack vectors, and so this is what I I pursued. Let's you know, let's go back to that. We've seen a number of uh, attacks in, you know, in the last couple of years in the industrial space that, that uh, you know, we track closely, um, where uh, compromised suppliers have been used to attack 
sort of the uh, the the big targets. Um, you know, it seems to be a hard lesson to learn for uh, a lot of the large organizations. They may trust their suppliers uh, in in the sense of they trust the people at the suppliers. Uh, and it's hard to, to distinguish between trusting the people at the suppliers and trusting equipment that may be compromised at the suppliers. Um, are, there, are there concrete steps? Is there concrete advice you can give to organizations who are, are trying to come up to speed on this problem? First of all, this is a, a true threat. I mean, supply chain, that's the professional term. Supply chain is definitely a threat because what happens is that is that organization uh, organizations protect themselves against attack. They do, they build all the walls around them and they do a very good job in that. But eventually, in the, day, at the end of the day, they buy something from another provider which is not well protected and attackers understand it. They attack the provider. They don't attack directly the, uh, the organization. So definitely supply chain is a true threat. On the other end, if you go into the mathematics behind supply chain, you see that it's a very complicated problem to solve. I mean, the number of providers for a company like Boeing, for instance, or Lockheed Martin, whatever, can be uh, six-digit. So how do you deal with it? And I'm speaking just about the first layer. What about the second tier and third tier? So it's a sort of unsolved uh, problem. The idea is that you define what we call, and that's the policy that we built in Israel. We define what we call certified providers. Those providers that provide equipment for critical assets inside sensitive organization will be certified by either the authority or the organization that buy them. A certified provider will have to stand after uh, to, to meet certain standards like human reliability, like physical security, like uh, um, separation between network, uh, sometimes using unidirectional technologies, etc., in order to protect specific assets, um, which in the end of the day are uh, generated, oh, sorry, um, specific assets that generate uh, delivery for the main organization. And are these deliveries, uh, are you thinking primarily hardware? Are you thinking software deliveries? Are you thinking people showing up on site delivering services with laptops that might be compromised? How much, how much of this fits into this supply chain problem? First of all, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Any of the, uh, the three, hardware, software, and human, a human that uh, uh, provides service, um, are both threats. Definitely, hardware is the most challenging one because it's very hard to detect, but it's also very challenging for the attacker. So it belongs to a very uh, narrow yet sophisticated kind of attacks. Software is the common one because it's very easy to define, to build an attack that will be actually inserted into a legitimate software code. And human service are easier to uh, control because when you uh, let someone to enter into an organization, you can follow what he does. You, you don't let him use his equipment. You will force him to use your own equipment, etc. So these are the three. Hardware are very sophisticated. Software is very common for attacker, very common, and human service can be uh, easily controlled. I'm glad that, that Buki brought up these points. I think it's... it's uh it can be a somewhat overlooked matter. I was actually doing research recently on a, a an old story about a, a hack of Target, uh, the the U.S. company, um, that occurred in 2013. And in that case, the hackers didn't actually hack Target directly. What they did was 
They found online resources that Target had published for the public on the web, listing their vendors and suppliers. And what these hackers did was they went down the list, they found information on the vendors, they sent out phishing emails, and there was a small HVAC company in rural Pittsburgh, in the rural areas of Pittsburgh. Um, it's sort of this like three-man operation. I went to their website. Everybody who works there looks like they could be on The Sopranos. Um, and they sent a phishing email to more than one of the vendors of Target. Uh, this company happened to not be running proper antivirus software. One of their employees opened the email, as employees tend to do. They got access credentials there for Target's suppliers portal. They bridged the suppliers portal, and suddenly, through this tiny little HVAC company, they were able to gain access through Target's whole systems. And now there's obviously the matter of lateral movement. You could blame Target for how easy it was for those hackers to move laterally from the vendor portal to the point of sale systems that they were able to hack and get credit card information on. But the point still stands that it wasn't ultimately Target that let these people in. It was trusting this other company. That's right. The uh, you can you can you know you can think of it as an issue with trust. Um, you know, I think other people would look at it and say this is an issue with how Target configured their software systems because they trusted certain suppliers. They uh, provided, I don't know, call it a back door. They provided a path into their very sensitive systems that bypassed a lot of the uh, the security barriers that they put in place to to keep out, you know, the bad guys on sort of normal access paths. Um, you know, when I listened to Buki, the the uh, the thing that I I caught was a bit subtle. Um, he maintained that people were easier to control than, uh, you know, malware embedded in hardware or software. Just supervise the people when they're on site. So he's not talking about people in the supplier, uh, you know, sitting in their office logging in through software systems that, you know, have not been made robust enough. He's talking about physical people showing up on site with laptops in hand. And he said, well, the easy way to control that threat is to supervise these people. Have one of your own people, uh, you know, accompany them and make sure they don't do anything foolish. Um, what struck me about that is the way he just sort of took for granted that, of course, the people who normally work at these critical sites in Israel um, know how dangerous laptops are. They know how dangerous removable media is. Um, and that, you know, they, they know how to supervise these people. What I've heard, you know, and I mean, Waterfall's a, a, a vendor, uh, a product vendor. So we, you know, I don't get out much. I rely a lot on what I hear uh, customers tell us, what I hear other people tell me. What I've heard in uh, North America and other parts of the world is that this knowledge, this awareness is not commonplace in most of the world. In most of the world, I've, I've seen statistics quoted saying our own people physically on the site are one of our biggest security liabilities because they carry their own laptops that used to be connected to the internet and the hotel networks an hour ago or a day ago when they were off at the conference. They carry that same laptop into the control system network and connect it, not thinking about you know what might jump off of the laptop on the network. They carry uh, these USB drives around, not thinking about the threat that uh, 
you know, a, a, a cross contamination between the same drive plugged into the IT network or a home network two days ago, the, the threat that that poses to industrial operations, the fact that he um, uh, took for granted that, of course, the, the Israeli sites uh, know how to do this and know how to supervise visitors, I think speaks to the, the maturity of the security programs uh, at these Israeli sites and the, the, the strength of the, you know, the relationship that, that has been forged in terms of public-private. The, the private sector uh, appears to understand these issues uh, much more thoroughly than I've observed in the, the private sector in, in other geographies. I take your point. I think it's a, a properly paranoid way to look at the matter. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, of zombie movies. There's this trope in, in zombie movies and TV shows uh, that it's not actually the zombies that are the danger, it's the humans. Um, so I think it, it would be a good point for people to take that, uh, you know, it's not always about the systems. It's about how we mess up our own good things. Um, on that note, let's hear, uh, let's get back to your interview with Buki. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with us about your experience at the at the agency, about the experience of building the agency? Um, you know, what what lesson do you think uh, the you'd like the the world to take from this? As I said at the beginning, in the early 2016, the government of Israel decided to build the National Cybersecurity Authority, and the main idea was to protect the uh, civilian domain. From that perspective, the government resolution, which is also known by the name 2444, is more than just a resolution. It's a real revolution. Uh, because for the first time, the government of Israel says there is a sort of parallelism between water and cybersecurity. When you come home in Israel, and uh, the same in uh, uh, many countries worldwide, uh, you can open the tap and drink water directly from the tap, right? You never stop yourself to ask who took the necessary steps to make sure that water were clean, right? You know that the government does something in order to make water green. The government of Israel said for the first time, we want the cyber to be the same for the civilian, uh, for the Israel, uh, people in Israel. We want them to be able to use the cyber domain with no fear. That's the parallelism and that's the power behind the resolution. You know, I'm thinking about the very last thing you said. You want cyber to be like water, a utility. Um, Water in terms of open and clean for everyone, not just the utility. Clean, right. the, 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 I guess the question that I have is, is, what does that mean? If I go to a, you know, if, if, I'm, if I get, if I get uh, spam email, I get a lot of spam email, and I go to a, a bad website, and they, you know, trick me into downloading something, and now I've got crap on my machine, how is the government... What 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 does you know what does clean cyber mean? Is that what it means, or is it does it mean something else? So so the idea was that at the beginning, at least um, at my time, um, the idea was that uh, the government will provide a sort of assistance for those organizations that actually not not the not the the streets, but organizations that were eaten by uh, such a. Um, such an attack like a virus or spam or whatever. So yes, then yes. If you find uh, non-clean water in your glass, call us. We come in and we um, make it pure. Okay, so it's it's uh, it's a service for organizations at this point, not so much individuals. Who I th I think that yes, the answer is yes. I think that by time, the level of service from the government will be reduced. Uh, there's a um, 
once again, there is a tense between what a government wants to do in order to assist organization and what organization need to do in order to protect themselves by themselves. And there is the issue of privacy and uh, intellectual property organization that they want to, they, they don't want to share with the government or actually uh, they prefer not to share with the government. So at that time when we started, there was a goodwill time frame that we all together uh, put efforts in order to protect organizations. I think that by time, the government will take one step back, will return uh, only those critical or important, not just critical, but important sectors and companies, and the rest of the market will take care of himself. Well, those were Buki's final thoughts. Andrew, do you have any final thoughts? I do. Um, you know, reflecting on the interview, uh, I've said a couple of times Israel was a pioneer in this space. To me, it's interesting to ask why are they so pioneering? I mean, the answer seems obvious. The Israelis understand the threats that they face very clearly. Um, you know, I live in Canada. Canadians tend to be rather more relaxed about threats. Here's the point, though. When we talk about cyber threats, uh, Buki is right. It's the same attack tools that are used on IT networks, on the high levels of, of industrial networks. It's the same attack tools that are used all over the world. Um, the bad guys can get into Canadian sites and American sites and you know everybody else's sites using the same tools that are used to attack Israeli, uh, the Israeli sites. Cyber threats are global. Um, you know, what I'm thinking is that the rest of the world would do well to study what the Israelis are doing regarding uh, cybersecurity and especially industrial cybersecurity. Now, I'd like to thank Buki for speaking with us, and I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Um, but I would add um, that when I was listening to your conversation after you guys finished your formal part of the interview, uh, Buki was talking about uh, some of his experience and some of his past in the industry. And it, it sounded quite interesting to me. So what I'm going to do is we're going to sign off and then I'm just going to let Buki play us out. Andrew, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Nate. Always a pleasure. And here is Buki Carmelli once again. I really hope that I was helpful. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this was huge. Um, thank me, you so much. From the side, just listening to, to the idea of creating an agency that... Guys, it was It was an amazing it journey. In two years, and three more discussions. I give you, I give you a sense. Yeah. I give you a sense. In two years, when I joined, I mean, I worked for the largest hedge fund in Israel. I was the joint CEO. The name is Fera. It is located in Tel Aviv. We we in $1.3 billion. It's, in Israeli terms, it's huge. In U.S. terms, it's okay, but it's billion. Right? And one day I was in New York and I got a call from Prime Minister office and he knew me from previous jobs. So he asked me to, when I come back to Israel, to come to an interview. And uh, then he offered me the, uh, the job to uh, establish, uh, I was also the founder, not just the uh, director general, but also the founder of the authority. And at the time I uh, went on board, there were five people on, over there. When I returned the keys to Prime Minister after two years, uh, there were 250 employees. That's a tough journey, and with the bureaucratic issues around you, and with the as as at attacks and assets, installation, and, and all that stuff all together, towards amazing journey. Until next time, this has been the Industrial Security Podcast. <laughs>